Thanks to everyone who supported the show this week via Patreon, including Mick Cowans, Ian Mercer, Alistair Harding, Ian Wilkinson, Matt Lacey, Illico Elia, Roland Roberts, and Jamie Holland. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so from $1 per episode. Go to 361podcast.com forward slash support. Hello, hello, hello. Super duper, lovely. Rafe Blanford. Hello. Well, I've adjusted my microphone level, so hopefully Mark will be happy this week. I think he's going to say I'm too loud mm. now, but judging by the Ewan measure, I'm between the 18 and the 9, so that sounds about right. That sounds about right. Great. Rafe, tell Mark what it is that you have on your microphone. I've got my um, COVID face mask because I can't <laughs> find my microphone sock, <laughs> and it's down the back of the sofa or somewhere, and I'm really, really sorry, Mark, and I'll hang my head in abject shame. <laughs> Two drums and a cymbal fall off a hill. Boom. Yep. Yeah, it's not funny. Okay, fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to 361, a podcast about mobile tech and the world around it. My name is Ben Smith. I'm Ewan McLeod. And I'm Rafe Blanford. This is Season 20, Episode 7, and this week we're discussing the way COVID has reshaped our digital lives and reflecting on whether it will be a lasting change. gents how are you doing Rafe Blanford coming live from London I'm very well thank you Ben and how about you good thank you yes no complaints I mean actually loads of complaints but none that should make it onto the podcast yeah you and McLeod coming to us live from Muscat Amman how are you yes good evening hello hello it's uh, it's very very nice very warm still we are currently 37 degrees Celsius mm. yes that's, that's just too hot that's too hot for human life it's about to get the hottest, basically. So it is quite hot, but I still do enjoy it. I do enjoy walking around the office at midday. Yeah, and I, I can just I can manage around the office. That's that, yeah. Then I'm quite delighted to go back into the air conditioning. But it's just that that heat is still fantastic. I'm loving it. I always like the way that we've inadvertently. I mean, we never really planned this, but the structure of the podcast has evolved such that we have this kind of firewall of talking about how hot it is where you live. Mm. And if people can get through the firewall, they get out to the actual content and then they can, you know, in- enjoy the actual episode. Yeah. I like to feel that those that aren't committed enough will just listen to the first five minutes of us talking about the fact it's hot in the Middle East at the moment and go, <laughs> oh, this isn't the content I came for and just move on somewhere else. I think we've just been going through a process of continuous improvement because it used to be just about whether it was dark in Denmark or not. And that was kind of a binary state. At least we got a bit more granular and we sort of get like it's hot. It's very hot or it's excruciatingly hot. So mm. three stages definitely feels like an improvement on its dark and its light. Mm. I'm slightly worried that your next international move will move us onto a different sense and what we'll have is some long narration on, you know, what your next host country smells like or tastes like or you know, whatever. So <laughs> don't give them ideas. No, indeed. So those of you that have been listening for a long time know that we record these out of sequence and uh, quite a different rate. So although this will go out in the usual schedule, it's been quite a long break since we last had a recording so it's lovely to see you both and we were just having a bit of a chat a mid-season reflection about what we wanted to talk about and it's quite hard to get past covid because it's still even though things are improving in the countries that we live in at the moment and i know most of our listenerships in the uk and the us and things hopefully are improving for most people there Mm. it's still tough and it's still sort of the prevailing in a thought for most people most of the time but we wanted to take a moment to think about actually what the lasting good might come out of this 
obviously it's been an awful set of experiences and a miserable for many, many people. But it's also driven a huge amount of innovation and change and people have had to adapt. And inevitably, there's going to be some things that stick. So today's exam question, gentlemen, Mm. and we're going to talk about this in a moment, is what do we think the COVID-19 driven innovation, what do you think the COVID-19 inventiveness is going to stick as things recover? And what do we think has really changed in the world as a result of the very rapid, almost a sort of overnight reaction that we had to come up with? Mm. I want to start off actually with following up from last week's episode which was talking about on-demand services because of Mm. course we've talked a lot about on-demand services because they're novel and they've got a lot of investment but Rafe you've kind of got a personal story about how they're also particularly relevant to the world we find ourselves living in right now. Yes I have and actually this is a story that kind of resonates I think throughout this episode. Covid has almost forced us into new behaviours, new ways of working trying out new services and doing new things because of the constraints that have been imposed on us. And we've been trying out, you know, the on-demand services, yeah. Getir, Zap, Gorillas, and others. And shortly after we were recording that episode, I actually got a alert to self-isolate through, in the UK, it's the NHS app, but you know, these are kind of worldwide provided. And actually, this has been going up recently because of the third wave, and it will vary country by country. But part of that in the UK is you are meant to self-isolate by staying at home. They say basically don't go out, not even for exercise. And in this instance, it was a bit of a challenge for me because I was planning to do a shop and I'd been doing those less frequently, sort of fortnightly or weekly because I was kind of minimised contact. But the timing was wrong for me. It's like, oh, I kind of need to get some food in. And actually, I needed it pretty sharp. So I thought, oh, actually, I should try out, you know, well, it's not just to have a wow. sugar rush via Ben and Ewan, but to <laughs> see what it was like. I tried out Gorillas and a couple of others. Is that what you used last week, by the way? Gorillas? Yes. Well, did you use... Okay, right. right. So you went to the one you've already used. It was just kind of ease of use and actually it worked well for me last time. The thing, I mean, I said it last time, it was some of the local products that I could try out from a bakery, butcher and things like that that made it appealing. But when I then did the bigger shop, it was a bit annoying not having some of the brands and the things that I was more familiar with. And it's sort of probably more a small psychological thing around the type of milk that you're getting, for example, or cereal or things like that. Mm. And so I tried that and it worked well. It arrived very quickly, same kind of service and the usual thing. Was it 20 minutes? 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes? It was actually less than 20 minutes when I did it. I think I probably did it at less busy time. Wow. And, you know, it was some quite bulky stuff. So yeah, all worked well. It's just like, Actually, that has made this whole process a lot easier because I'm not having to find someone to go and do shopping for me. I'm not having Mm. to take that risk of going out myself. But it did prompt me to kind of look around a bit at other things and partly because I was being a bit lazy and partly because I needed to cheer myself up because I'd been doing self-isolation. I actually got a delivery order, which was a Bleecker Burger, which is one of my favorite restaurants in London for kind of that fast food, bad for you meal. So I got that and I just happened to notice that both Sainsbury's and Waitrose, which are two supermarket brands here in the UK, were listed in Deliveroo. Oh, that's kind of interesting. So I tried them out and it's a limited selection. So not yeah, not everything yeah. similar to Gorillas, but it felt like a slightly broader selection and certainly things that I would be familiar buying, particularly from a kind of fresh fruit and vegetable point of view. And it just seemed to me like when it arrived, it was slightly higher quality. 
I'm not sure whether it was a sense of the familiar, but you know, previously I've used online ordering from you know lots of the supermarkets and tried them out, partly because I was curious about their apps. But they always required you to book in a slot, and it was sort of three or four days' notice. Now, yeah. for me, that wasn't going to be fast enough. Useless. Yeah, yeah. Whereas this, and honestly, if it had been a couple of hours, that would have been fine too. But actually, it arrived within twenty minutes. It was wow faster than I could walk to Waitrose and then get back again if I did it myself. And yes, it was a little bit of a cost premium, but not very much. And that familiarity was great. So I want to challenge you. The exam question here is, will it last? Because mm. it's handy now yeah. for definite. Yeah. And I'm curious because I think you're an interesting case here because when we did the test, one of the things, and I don't know if it made it into the episode, but one of the things you said is, this is a bit kind of much. You know, I should stop being lazy. I should go down to the shop and get the stuff myself. Yes. And I'm wondering whether or not the self-isolation, the worry about, you know, going out, perhaps the need to care for other people, just the fact that people's lives have been turned upside down and all the normal routines that meant that they could shop and, you know, do that kind of stuff has gone upside down. Have broken down the mental barrier that people will be more willing to use these services a bit like you? In future, you mean? Like after? Yeah, because yeah. once you've done it once and it was quick and easy, you don't really feel too bad about doing it again. I'm trying to think of a parallel. The first time I used Deliveroo, the food delivery service, I was thinking, God, I should just walk down the road to go to the pizza restaurant. Like it's a mile that way. You know, when I'm at work, I should just go and collect the pizzas for the team that's working late, which is when I tend to use Deliveroo. You know, we get pizzas delivered to the office. I should just go and do it. But you do it and then it works and it's kind of quite convenient. Mm. And then this kind of thing goes pop in your head and then the barrier's not there anymore. So it was exactly that. For me, because then when I stopped self-isolating and I had actually been into the office and thought, oh, I kind of need to get a few things. Uh-huh. And in this case, it was it was before I was going to go on holiday. And it's like, I just need three days worth. And actually, I quite like these things that I can't get in the Sainsbury's local, which is the one that's you know, three or four minutes away. And I don't have the time to walk down to Waitrose. I think for me, it was because it was more familiar. The stuff I was going to get actually felt just slightly less of a reach than going with gorillas or zap but it definitely prompted that behavior change that wouldn't have happened if i hadn't had that need to do it through self-isolation now i wouldn't do it every time but there's definitely going to be occasions where i go oh it's convenient to do it have you changed do you think i've since used it twice more oh and one was like coming back from holiday i just needed some stuff it would work the next day i didn't have time to get out something because i was sort of doing the usual unpacking getting ready and i just wanted stuff to then last me two or three days can i just ask you a question when you say you didn't have time right in your mind were you choosing to use your time differently because this is what these services claim right it was it was a hierarchy of needs yes thing really interesting and so i would actually now expect i won't use it all the time but extra cases like sometimes it's going to be more convenient and the other occasion was actually more about I needed something specific as an ingredient to do some cooking with. And I then just ordered a few more things than I might otherwise have done. And I was halfway through the cooking. So it was that convenience factor. Wow. But it's that old reminder that it's often that nudge thing to get you over that uncomfortable moment. And now I probably still feel guilty about it in the same way that you do a little bit with, you know, Deliveroo or Uber or whatever. What? But yeah, so that's a change for me. Guilty. Ewan doesn't suffer from that particular problem, Rafe. No. No, you're keeping the economy moving, right? The worst thing you can do is go and, you know, go do it yourself. And I want to bring it back to mobile because... Yeah, all on phone. Many moons ago, that was what this podcast was about. Yeah. I think our behavior hasn't changed quite the same as yours, Rafe, because we don't have access to those on-demand services. But 
we have utilized online ordering and pickups and clicks and collects much more. And for me, the integration where I can say to one of our voice assistant, add this thing to the shopping list, and then we you know, order all the things on the shopping list for click and collect. It's taken away the burden of needing to do those tasks as a discrete thing. Because if you sit down and say, right, now I'm going to do all the shopping for my family for a week, it's quite a large task. Mm. But if you sit down, every time you run out of a staple ingredient, if you shout out to the voice assistant, add it to the shopping list, you've made the task so much smaller. And I think, you know, for you, you could then follow up with the instant update. But our behavior has changed as well. We were already using those services, but we've absolutely become completely reliant on them now totally dependent because a it's a way for us to avoid going to the shops it was a way for us to you know be safe when we needed to be safe but the convenience is kind of well why would we add the inconvenience back into our lives yes anyways let's move on you mcleod mm. i want to talk to you about something that potentially is a little bit go on uk centric because i don't know if aman has it but i want to talk about proximity bluetooth mm. and basically in the uk that's the nhs test and trace app but that's also the Google and the Apple APIs that basically watch for Bluetooth devices around you. Mm. And then whichever country you're in and whichever sort of health authority area you're in, because I think in the, in the US, even the states, each individual state has their own service. Mm. It watches and it goes ping. And then when somebody who you've been near for enough of a time over a threshold gets sick, they tell their health authority and the health authority tells the service and the service goes ping. And, and then you can isolate or test or whatever the rules are in your country. Right. And when I bought those air tags a few weeks ago, we talked about, oh look, you know, this Bluetooth finding network, you know, you were near my air tag when my yes. bike got stolen and then that told your iPhone and that iPhone told Apple and Apple told me. You know, I think whilst people maybe don't see the link, the necessity, the work that's been done on Bluetooth proximity and location sensing has probably, I think, has accelerated products in that space on years ahead because now we've had a a huge amount of testing and exposure and thought and engineering time put into that Mm. and i don't think losing my keys or losing my wallet would have justified that in the past it would have been a nice add-on you know apple was doing a lot and we've talked about the fact that they have really made it work smoothly it just works with those uh, air tags and i think they would ordinarily have because of uh, apple's might and so on they would have made this category a very effective space ongoing anyway. I think if you remove the technology, the terms proximity, Bluetooth, and so on, and, and, and LTE, and whatever, move that to one side, and think about just the, the end consumer behavior. Because you know, your mother, your friend, colleague, who, who is absolutely not into mobile, but what they get is that if they've got the app, it does this thing. And I think that's probably the change that, and I, I think it, I think it's safe to say it's permanent. I think right, because so many types and segments of people are now educated that their phone does this. Yeah. Now, knowing the specifics, I don't think many people, and in fact, one, if you, if you stop a British person on the road and say, where are you on proximity Bluetooth? But they've got the NHS app, right? Okay. Doesn't matter though, does it? As you say. So I think that's important. In Oman, they don't have that. That, that was just, a, a, I think, a choice the government made. It's actually when you come into the airport, you have to go and, and quarantine. I haven't done it myself. I don't want to do that with uh, three children mm. and a wife in one room for 10 days or whatever. But for my colleagues that have done so, they give you a watch. They give you a sensor. That's what Oman's done here. But I think the concept stands on proximity Bluetooth. I don't think the majority of customers 
care about the terms, but I think they are now educated. So most consumers globally, or any consumers globally now, particularly in Western markets where they've deployed this, the health services deployed this, it's a thing that's understood. Next. Yeah, I think people won't necessarily see the link between air tags no. and test and trace as we have in the UK. No. And in some respects, you know, I'm sure there are people listening to this who will be shouting at the podcast at the moment, Apple developed air tags first and Tile and other products had location sensing before that. Mm. But I think crucially, what they've done now is hundreds, thousands of hours of engineering have gone into refining the proximity sensing, setting thresholds, understanding how long you know the exposure yeah. is, yeah. baking that into APIs so that it's reusable by apps and those sorts of things. Mm. And all of these things would have happened. But I think you're absolutely right. The hardest thing that's happened has been the change in the consumer's mind. Yes, it does that. That's cool. Next. It's a thing that happens. Yeah. And I think actually what would be really interesting now would be to see what happens next. Yeah. Because I would guess, I have no information at all on this, but I would guess that many countries, including the UK, will encourage people to leave test and trace apps on their phone so that in a public health emergency in the future, new alerts could be sent if there's a new pandemic or something like that. Which opens, by the way, a massive, 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 serious question about personal safety, personal security, the surveillance state, and so on. But I understand. Yeah. Yes, I think it's interesting, although in some respects, I think that if governments do ask citizens to leave those kind of apps on their phone, it sort of makes the case for Google and Apple because they insisted that they would only allow those features to work if the health authorities used the APIs they provided. And those APIs introduced that mandatory anonymization. Mm. You know, it's not possible for a government to identify the citizen. In time, there might be a way to circumvent it. But for now, the person is genuinely anonymous. And in the UK, the original proposed solution for the test and trace app was one that didn't use Apple and Google's APIs and was built by the health authorities themselves mm. with the intention that they would be able to identify you and they would be able to tie it back to a person. And there was all kinds of commitments about how that data would be handled to keep you safe. But actually, the problem is on a global scale, if you trust the government today, you may not trust the government in the future because governments change, but also different governments apply different levels of sensitivity protection. And you know what Apple was content to endorse may not be of the same as some of the governments in more, more challenging situations. But essentially, I think there's two things will happen. One is governments will ask people to leave those on. And it's interesting that it's almost teaching people to suck eggs, but quite a lot of the countries that had good pandemics had experienced avian flu and things like that in the past right. and had many of those measures already in place because they basically they've rehearsed this mm. several times over. Their citizens either already had apps like that on their phones or were just new, you know, like, Next time the government says, oh, there's a new pandemic, there's another health emergency, get the health emergency app, please, and install it. And then the second one is, I'm curious to see what this turns into, because we've got device tracking, we've got health proximity sensing. How long is it before when you go to Disneyland that you start to get points for being in this part of Disneyland or that part of Disneyland yes. because you were close to these things? And again, the proximity sensing and you know, buying a special armband and checking in, you know, at a theme park or something has been possible for a long time. But what about if it was just natively done through the phone? Because the phone now has this Bluetooth sensing capability. And again, people now would understand what that meant and enjoy it. So it could be gamified and, you know, there's opportunity for that or something to do with sports, you know, that you go for your run and, you know, 
the people that you're near are not sensed by, like on Strava, for example, you know, people that you ran past for GPS. Mm-hmm. It's the people that you ran with all the way because you stayed in contact with them the whole way around and things like that, you know, where proximity right. matters to the event that you're doing. So anyways, I think that that will be a lasting impact. Yeah. You and you've got one. Uh, so Ben, and I'm not sure, Rafe, if we, have, have we done a Wagamama Rafe? I, I can't remember if we've done, because I used to go to Wagamama a lot. <sighs> It's. I haven't had that privilege. It's a special experience. I don't think we, just because we've always been in the wrong part of the city. But when I was working with Ben, I used to do a Wagamama a lot. And for those who are not in the UK, this is a sort of a rapid service. Japanese fusion. Asian fusion yeah. restaurant yes. on the UK high street. And one of the best features of Wagamama, this is a couple of years ago now, they, oh, what was it called, Ben? They had this app mm. that was, I think, part related to MasterCard. I'm trying to remember what it was called now. But I loved it because what you would do is you'd go to Wagamama and you would check in with the server. So the lady or the guy would give you a number and you would type that into the app. It would locate, you know, you'd say, okay, you're in Islington, for example, mm-hmm. Islington, Wagamama. And then they would just leave you and you would type in what you wanted. And then that would be sent straight to the chef. So they, they kind of, they've checked you in and then you can order what you want. And I loved that because I, I, I didn't have to do a follow-up Coke order, your Diet Coke, I want another Diet Coke or another something. And then I can also, I can pay, right? Because when these restaurants are busy, you can just simply bring up the bill on the app and then pay and literally just leave. And everyone's happy and was supported by Wagamama. It was really, really cool. I think the chain that owned Wagamama, I forget the restaurant names because I've been out of the UK for so long, but they, they also owned another chain. I think they introduced it there as well. I use this stuff religiously all the time. This was three or four years ago. I used it at Heathrow Airport all the time uh, for the Wagamama there, just because I like that flexibility that once you've checked in, it did annoy me that I had to speak to a human, right, um, to, to get checked in. But once I was in, I could then add on other stuff that I wanted and it would just arrive. Okay, really cool. Yeah, I was just looking to try and find the app name and I can't, but you're right, it was... Quick Pass? Something like Master that. MasterPass, Quick Pass, something like that. It was done by the payment provider and I remember that because those services weren't very common in the UK at the time, it was always slightly unusual, and then you know, they might yeah. have to ask somebody else. But as soon as they did it, there was that joy of not having to flag people down because yeah. those restaurants were always super busy at lunchtime. I use it especially for children. Yeah. When, uh, we, when I was a family, really good because there was a moment when you've got toddlers, uh, you just want to get out of Dodge. Right, pay the bill, go, let's go, let's go. You know, when it's got too crazy. We've timed out, yes. That's right. So now, three or four years ago, I really loved this. Now, question for you, Rafe, and then a follow-up with Ben. Where are you on commerce at the table? Because I'm hearing a lot about this, especially in the local small pub. What's the status? What's happening there in the UK? Because I, I'm, not, I'm not seeing that here in Oman, but I'm hearing a lot about it, especially in the media. Where are you on that? Well, I think there's kind of a twin track experience here because what's been kind of obliged legally is not going up to the bar and having table service. And some of those restrictions have changed recently. But there was also, in parallel to that, a lot of scan this QR code at the table to get a menu or to then potentially the full service as well. Right. It tended to be the bigger change. So I was in a Weatherspoons and oh, Rafe. that had, well, it was a oh, Rafe. work thing. And um, <laughs> Are you not senior enough to veto this? <laughs> <laughs> not when you don't drink, I'm not. Okay. <laughs> but I've also been into a couple of smaller like restaurants and pubs where they have had the, you can order and it will then arrive at your table. And I can see how that can be a saving on staff because obviously it's probably a bit more efficient than having someone wandering around, do you want to make an order on table service? Mm. 
And so that commerce at table, we've talked about it a lot. It's always been a thing in the mobile space, and there were always startups around this. But I think some of the things that have happened as a result of COVID, and we're going to talk about QR codes a bit later, you know, and, and contactless payments, mm. have made this sort of a bit more popular. But again, I think people will be more willing to accept this going forward because there is you know, quite a lot of convenience around it. The other thing that is not at table, but it's order ahead. And so you can, especially for fast food and some restaurants, you can order it go and pick it up. And I think that's the other thing that's really come in in the UK. I'm curious as to whether or not this is a lasting thing, because I agree with you. I went out for a dinner at a pub recently in London. It was really nice. We sat outside. It was still the point where the table service was mandatory. And I was quite looking forward to it because I was seeing some, obviously not seeing any friends for ages. So seeing a friend, hadn't seen for ages. And it was just nice to be able to order because you chat order your food, have a bit of a chat, order your food. And it kind of Is there a table number? Yeah, it was a table number. Right. Okay, right. It was a Fuller's pub, so it's a reasonably large brewery that owns a lot of pubs around London. A chain. But it's perhaps a smaller chain mm. than Rafe's kind of Weatherspoons, which is sort of a high street pub. Mm. And I think the problem was that it was obviously very generation one. It was done on a web page. It was very clunky didn't load a few times. It wanted me to tell them where I was. So I had to say, I'm in this particular pub and I'm sat at this particular table. And there was a couple of times where the convenience of that was, well, blown away basically because the people doing the table service arrived and wanted us to order because there wasn't a way for us to say, no, we're going to use the app. We could have just used it more quickly. Right. And it was so clunky that by the time I'd gone through and we'd looked at paper menus that were you know, behind perspex on the table. You know, oh, I'm having, you know, I'm having that. You're having that. Quick, I'll find it in the app. Find it. There. I'm nearly there. I'm just, I'm just. Oh, yeah, I'm in uh, East London. Yep. Yeah, no, table two hundred. Typing. You know, and it was obviously for Gen One, and so I'm kind of a bit split because, in some respects, I think, of course, it was Gen One. It was rolled out really quickly, and the argument is every till system for a restaurant or mm. somewhere that serves with table service. That's a hygiene factor in their next upgrade. Yes. You know, there'll always be an app because there has to be an app. But in the other respects, actually, as the outside seating becomes less premium, as table service is no longer mandatory and people can go back to normal, people will just do that because it's easier because, the, you know, what they have at the moment is clunky. Yeah. And so I'm torn there as to whether that's a lasting benefit. But I think certainly I would choose to go to places that had that feature. Yes. Because frankly, if we're meeting up for dinner, I don't want to go and queue up at the bar or the till to order my food or to order my drinks. I want to have a nice evening at the table. Yes. You know, so I would perhaps choose to spend money there. There's the same argument on people are aware. You know, so for proximity Bluetooth, we were saying, look, the benefit there is people just get it. Yeah. You know, is there a reality that a whole segments of customers that would never have ever dreamt of doing anything on their phone are now used to that? I remember sitting in the Kempinski Hotel nearby and, and seeing segments that I know would never have done this before. Yeah. Taking their phone out. They already had a phone. They always had a phone, right? And then they scan the QR code and they get the menu that way. Yeah, you know, that was just normal for them now. So is the argument that as those till systems are upgraded, some restaurants will choose to make that a feature or a requirement for various different reasons? I think it's also the question about apps because the experience is poor because it costs a lot of money to develop and maintain an app. And many of these places don't have apps that are, you know, 
rich enough to have menus and billing and e-commerce and real-time payment and everything built in. And so they fell back to the web and that was really clunky. In some respects, app clips and things like that came along a bit slowly because that's a new concept whereby you can download a little bit of an app and have an experience without needing to install it. So that would have been handy for the pubs and the restaurants that could afford to install it. But actually, I'm sort of thinking that this is something that should be baked into the platform, you know, that ultimately I should be able to sit down at the table and Apple should have an Apple Pay screen that allows me to Apple Pay the place I'm sitting, you know, now. Yes. A bit like, you know, the one that worked for you at Wagamama's was not Mm. a Wagamama's app. It was a MasterCard one because they were working with the payment provider. Yeah. Mm. Masterpass or Quicker at that time. Quicker was the brand. I would disagree slightly with that because I think it depends on the quality of the experience and the execution. As you mentioned app clips, friend of the show, Ilico, was telling me about a pub that has developed an app clip and it just worked a bit better than web because the payment went through faster, but it was, you know, an app like experience. And it's a nudge towards getting that. But you're also right, like the till system, things like that, you know, POSs, they have like a 10 or 20 year life cycle on them in some cases, but COVID kind of forced it to happen. And I wonder whether you know, we'll see the after effects of that. But I think it's a kind of mention of why experience is so important. And like that can be the MasterCard quicker thing. It can be built into the platform. And actually, if you do it right, a web experience can be pretty good now because you can have Google Pay and Apple Pay. You can preserve it as a PWA for next time and things like that. So for me, it's actually the quality of the implementation and the experience. But I'll also say, in contrast to things like proximity, which is a zero-click interaction, like that just happens in the background and you're not aware of it. That for me is a big new wave of mobile and working out how that happens. And you were talking about intelligently sensing when you've been somewhere or done something in the background. I think that's big. This still requires you to pull out a phone, have a trigger to it, go through a couple of steps. And the trouble is that is just a little bit more of a thing you have to do, hurdles you have to jump through. And is it that much better than just going up to the bar and paying with your watch or contactless or whatever else? And so it's the convenience tipping point is different in this case. So I wonder whether it will be harder to get this to stick post-COVID. I think this will be harder to stick as it was done during COVID because to have a good app, to have a good website, to have an app clip, even to do the web version is expensive and hard. But it made me think about the stories I'd heard from India and China and places like that, where messaging services like Weibo and and I suppose it would be WhatsApp for us, Mm. actually surface e-commerce inside of the chat clients, and not particularly because you want a chat experience, because it's virtually no effort for the vendor to load their menu or to load their shopping cart into the chat app and for then you to check out because it's basically, you know, all the rigor and the payment mechanics of the app that is enormous, but having, you know, it would work with a cafe, you know, it would work with an independent cafe or a small shop because they can, you know, load one time the menu system or the products they offer. And I wonder, again, at the risk of, of drawing the same conclusion, whether or not this was a nice taster. Yes. But actually next time something like this happens, or frankly, next time you go to a place that's just really busy where you can't get served quickly yes. or quickly enough, there'd be a real incentive to, you know. Or where they build it as a feature. In my world, for example, iMessage, you know, ordering, you know, the, it's an iMessage app and yeah. you can do it through there. Yeah. Again, not because it's messaging, but because that's the way to surface a user experience 
quickly and simply to people. Have you been in any McDonald's recently? Because I know touching screens is probably not very good uh, covered style, but uh, quite a few McDonald's I've been here in Oman, and that's the only one I know, you know at the moment for the last 18 months. You cannot order from the till yeah. now. Yes. You have to order from the screens. That's just the deal. Or it's very difficult or annoying. You know, basically, you have to use the screens, the touch screens. I can't speak about McDonald's particularly, but uh, there was a period where places like Starbucks and coffee shops were shut for customers to come inside the store. And so what they were asking people to do was to use their mobile apps right. and right. do a mobile order, and then they would bring the coffee to a table by the front door and you could collect it. And so wow. you know, even though I was stood there ready to sort of do an in-person order, I had to use the app. So the market's ready. So anyone that wants to innovate, you know, if Apple brings something, if Google brings it, or if someone else brings something, the market is at least aware of this. But I think the question about the sticking, though, is the fact that McDonald's or Starbucks can create a really nice, well, you know, well-managed app that is a breeze to use, and I probably already have installed because I'm a customer and the loyalty wallet and all that kind of stuff. Mm. But actually, what about the cafe in the middle of town? You know, what about the independent pub? And I think that's where I see it struggling to stick. But I think people have been softened up for it. Yes, that's a good phrase. Yes. You know, I think people would be really happy if they could get that experience, but I don't see a way for them to have that experience. And I'm sorry, I disagree, Rafe. I don't think web is good enough now because whilst it technically can be, the cost is so great. You're paying app kind of money. You're just using a different technical platform. But I'm not going to give you a right to respond on that because we need to move on. This is my way to win the argument. (laughs) (laughs) Let's do this really quickly. Absolutely everywhere went cashless that I could think of. Yes. A local, a little corner shop, nearly everywhere took card payments already, but there was normally a sign taped on underneath that said minimum five pounds or whatever. Yes. And even though I think that those minimum transactions, I don't know if they're illegal, but I think they're certainly being frowned on by the payment providers who don't want those minimum transaction signs to limit it. Hmm. But I think the point was it was ingrained in people's heads that you didn't use a payment card for small transactions. Well, now you do. Now you use them for absolutely everything and no one bats an eyelid about that. But also the number of people in supermarkets and things I've said who are just having that conversation around, I'm going to pay for my groceries. Oh, but it's more than 40 pounds. doesn't matter. Mm. I'm using Apple Pay. I'm using Google Pay. It's absolutely landed in people's heads that contactless payment that's authenticated through a phone is pretty much in their eyes unlimited now. Mm. I've been really following the cashless trend here in Oman because when I arrived it was very much cash 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 you know car payments were available and coming straight from the Nordics effectively I find that quite a you know a reset having to carry cash around and pay for stuff in shops with actual paper money and then sometimes receiving coins back Mm. that was annoying just because I'd prefer not to do that but interestingly watching COVID and then watching the reality at the start of the year I think I can remember the, you know, the government here in a man saying, look, please, 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 your government encourages use of contactless. And then I remember taking photos as I was walking around the malls last year with all these different shops with big signs up either at the till or at the entrance saying, please use contactless. Please. Yeah. Yeah, for obvious reasons. Interestingly, a man has just said, right, a cashless payment option is mandatory now for all payments from next year. So that's really interesting, the acceleration. That, so that's a law changed. Next year, if you want to buy fish, you want to buy anything, you've got to have a contactless capability. The discussion in the UK actually has been the other way around, which is contactless and actually retailers' in, and enthusiasm for contactless mm. and cashless transactions 
has been so great that there's some talk that you might need legislation to force people to accept cash, mm. force banks or, or financial services providers to put cash machines in places so that those who are unbanked or not able yes. to access digital yes. services don't get cut off from the ability to pay. But I think it's a real mark that I think the UK has been sort of just on the cusp of the turning point for a while now. And certainly, if you go around London, it's entirely possible to have a completely cashless experience and it has been right. for years, I think, and you didn't really have to try it. But actually, now that holds true where I am. You know, the local pub, I can pay all my transactions contactless. The corner shop, I can pay all my transactions contactless. No minimum limit. Mm. I can go in and buy one can of fizzy drink and pay for it contactless. Nobody's berating me for transaction fees or anything like that because, you know, the world has changed. And I don't think that's going back. I don't think if the sticky label goes back on the till that says, you know, we won't use the card machine for anything less than five pounds. I think that's a regression I can't imagine happening at all. And I actually think that it's going to drive uptake of Apple Pay and Google Pay because people see that the card is annoying because you have to have it in your pocket, but also it only does in the UK. It varies by retailer, I think, but 30 or 40 pounds. Mm. But the big supermarkets in the UK have all adopted you know, much, much higher limits with those. And again, I think that's baked into people's heads. And actually, I think people might be assuming there's no limit now you know, it's like a card transaction where you put a pin in, you know, the, the only limit is fraud or the funds that you have, you mm. know, in your account. So I think that one, it definitely is here to stay. Rafe Blanford, it says here QR codes, and you've already trailed this one. So what can we say about COVID and QR codes? Because in the UK, that's how we've used the test and trace services as asked us to check in by scanning the QR codes into the test and trace app. But there are lots of other places as well. Yes, there are. And we've kind of mentioned some of them as trigger points for menus and getting into things because although there's been lots of efforts around doing image recognition, object recognition, you're still having to kick off an experience in some way. And QR codes seem to be the way that that is going. And I've noticed it in the work that I'm doing, like it's starting to be considered a viable option, whereas before, you kind of get laughed out of the room. And it's worth saying that this varies very much by market. You know, QR codes have been big in India and China for a while, but it almost feels like COVID has accelerated their adoption or they've become okay because people, again, have been essentially forced into using them for some time. It's worth saying also that it is built into the camera of most phones now that you point at a QR code and something will pop up. It just works. So the seamlessness is better. You're not having to download and install a QR code reader, which used to be the case. And it's just that lesson for frictionless journeys are critical to making uptake work. And that's, you know, I was talking before about it's zero click in this case. Basically, it's one click or two click. Start the camera application, point at the QR code, get it, open the browser and you're on your way. But it's been noticeable that it's not just about people using them because COVID they are starting to appear more in magazines and adverts. And I've you know, been advised on out-of-home campaigns and how big should the QR code be. And it's sort of a 10 to 1 ratio on your distance away from things. And sometimes that results in very big QR codes. And so I just think it's probably crossed over that threshold. And there are some stats around about this. It kind of varies a lot, but it was sort of 10% of people were using QR codes maybe once a month right. in Europe and the US. That has now been pushed up to kind of 30, 40%. And I think that's a tipping point where it goes, yeah, people are going to use this. It'll be interesting to see how that 
is sustained. But all the things that we're talking about, I think it also crosses over with this idea that you can do more things in the digital world linked to physical and this idea of physical and digital coming close to an AR experience. All of that builds into this as well. And I'm going to do what I don't normally do and kind of like a bit of promo for work that we've done at Digitas. And one of this was digitizing the Marcus Rashford mural that was created mm. following as part of the Euro Championships. And then it got defaced after the final. Then lots of notes were put around it. And this is in the public domain, so I'm perfectly happy to talk about it with the client of BT. Preserved that mural, made it possible for people to go and read it, uh, read all the messages despite not having to go there. But there is also another mural commissioned and there's a QR code on it. And there wasn't any kind of pushback about people won't understand this. It's not going to work. People immediately got this was how to go and get the digital version and go to bthopeunited.com. And it was interesting for me because previously I've had to have conversations about why QR codes will work, why they're not actually that out there. No, they haven't been discredited. This isn't another Google Glass thing. Mm. And that's switched. Mm. Mm. And I mean, it's an anecdote rather than data, but it's interesting like that QR code and that need to kind of link in from a physical thing into the digital world, I think has become more paramount because it is about reducing contact sometimes, but it's also about that larger scale adoption of digital services. I and mean, all of this episode, we've kind of avoid mentioning it, but one of the big quotes has been five years of digital adoption in five months. And there's been variations on that from lots of tech leaders, including Microsoft's uh, Satya Nadella. Mm. It's a common thing, but I'm actually really seeing the evidence of that in some of the work. And it is that accelerative effect. But the principles here are that it needs to be seamless. It needs to be easy. Yeah. What COVID has done has just given that extra nudge to let people try it the first time. And that is the most difficult gate to overcome. But it does also remind me like how important experience is. And like, you can get QR codes wrong if you make them too small or you make them too big mm-hmm. or they're not positioned rightly or whatever it happens to be. And that applies to contactless as well as well as proximity and everything else. And so it's quite interesting to think about those rules that should be self-evident to people who work in digital or anyone who uses digital services. But I think it's been an important reminder. It's not just the nudge behavior. It's the experience and the process and the execution that goes with that. And I agree with Ben that actually some of the things that have happened during lockdown and COVID have been almost like emergency stop gaps. But now starting to see them getting a bit more polished, people thinking about that kind of end-to-end, that connected experience and journey. And those are actually, I think that's the thing that will make these things stick, where they aren't just you know replacing something in an emergency. They become easy to use or easier to use than the alternative. And frankly, are adding value or purpose that just wasn't there before. And a lot of it's around convenience, but some of it is stuff that just wasn't possible before. I'm curious about the uh, QR codes because certainly in the UK, one of the downside of using QR codes to check into venues was the venues placed them and they generally placed them in awful places that were inconvenient to take pictures of. I mean, my favorite one is our local independent cafe that has a table by the door with hand sanitizer and the code on, but the code is on the table with all the hand sanitizer underneath. So you can't actually take a picture of it because it's obscured by all the things on top. (laughs) And I wonder if there's a negative association there but again, I think it's about training the mechanic. I mean, again, Ray, if I like your anecdata piece, the yogurt brand that we buy has switched from providing kind of loyalty points as codes printed on the packaging to a QR code you take a photo of and it adds the points onto your account. Right. It's a single data point. 
But the thing is that, you know, we're now at the point of, I want to quickly capture some data, a QR code's a convenient way to do it. Yeah. And again, for me, it's pushed us a bit closer to that breaking point where people, it's just normal now. Yes. Just normal. Let's move on because we're nearly out of time. I want to jump forward to digital health records. Loads of stuff has been digitized and the subject of vaccine passports is very, very uh, hotly debated at the moment. Mm. And I'm not touching that with a barge pole, but I think whether you think vaccine passports are good or bad, you can't help but acknowledge that every country that is doing something to allow people to prove their vaccination status, and the UK has done that, all of Europe has done that, it's all being done with smartphones. There's absolutely no question in anyone's mind that people will have smartphones and access to apps yes. or web pages that allow them to prove their status. Right. All of these services will give you a nice printed letter from your doctor or from the health authority as well. Yes. But that's the secondary version of the service. You know, oftentimes you need to renew those documents because they only last 30 days or something like that. And you'll need to sort of continually update that bit of paper. But you and I think that for those of us that lived in countries where digital health records were things that doctors had, but not the patients themselves, mm. I think people's expectation has completely changed. And if you look at the download stats on the NHS app, not the test and trace app, but the actual app where you could manage your own health and look up your own mm. conditions and those sorts of things, it's off the charts. And I think this has kicked it absolutely, you know, kind of into a prime time activity now. Well, I, I think, look, the, is there a passport? Do I need to show it? You know, the, the, the whole host of issues around that, especially in the United Kingdom. But I think what we see in other countries and what I'm reading, you know, is a very binary statement from some governments. It's simply saying, you will have this if you want to do anything. And having consumers going, yeah. For example, I, I have the Oman app. Uh, it's called Tarasut. And my COVID vaccine is listed there. I can, I just exactly as you say, I can print out the certificate that I, I am going to want to do that if I want to get back into the UK at some point. This is the deal. So I already have digitized health records anyway. I don't think that's been a surprise to many people that their health records are being stored digitally. I think the question now is that give and take between if I want to go to a nightclub, do I have to effectively show my digitized health record yeah, to the bouncer at the door? I can see lots of people having lots of problems with that. But in other markets or other countries, this is the deal. Everything's going digital. Here's the stat that I forgot and have now found again. Go on. There are 5 million registered users of the NHS app. That's the one that you use to manage your health records, not the test and trace app, which is separate. 1.3 million of those have signed up since it was announced it was going to be used for evidence of COVID vaccination on 7th of May. Wow. So where are we now? We're at the end of July. They've added a million users in the space of two months based on a single announcement. And for me... This is like the perfect example of a product has to have a purpose to encourage people to use it. And previously that, oh, get your health records. And I was one of those people who signed up as a result. Actually, my surgery didn't have the integration. And so still waiting for the update, I can get access to the COVID certification and stuff like that. Mm. But if ever you needed a reminder that it's often one feature that drives user behavior, kind of this is it. But I do think uh, this is the sort of thing that can become longer lasting because there probably is going to be an acceptance that the idea that you can prove things or have digital identity and documents and whether that becomes passports and driving license, which you know, is in roadmaps and things like that in various countries, the idea that you'll use your device to kind of prove something 
And that's kind of already happening in other ways with, you refer to this to kind of digital identity, know your customer. Actually, part of signing up for the NHS app is, you know, taking a photo of your driving license to prove who you are. And, you know, we're seeing that for onboarding for other apps, particularly if you're working in the gig economy, that kind of is a very standard thing. There's companies and startups working on that space. And that for me is interesting. Again, it's probably been accelerated or prompted in a way that we just wouldn't have had. And in some ways, the effect of this could be even longer lasting because just as we've come used to kind of on-demand services for consumer goods, it's then on-demand services for kind of maybe social wellness, health services, which have traditionally had pretty tough barriers to entry for digital. And I think you put that in with the proximity and the senses we were talking about earlier. And, you know, there are things that are coming along that can use the other sense of your phone or on the watch to tell you stuff about that. And it just feels like there's a kind of rising tide. And if the last 10 years have been about getting a smartphone in everyone's pocket, Mm. the next 10 years are about what mobile and the kind of ecosystem around it and all these things can now do through smartness in terms of sensors, data intelligence, collecting and sharing. And like I say, it's that crossover to the digital and physical worlds, which feels like what we'll be talking about for the next 10 years. And I think what COVID has done has probably accelerated that process by two or three years. And you could talk about augmented reality, for example, the idea of being able to have experiences in your home, hybrid events, you know, Microsoft Flight Simulator, all of those things are sort of building up to that same pattern. And I think that's pretty exciting. I mean, and that is a positive benefit that you can talk about, that you get change on. And the sort of scale we're talking about, this is hundreds of millions of people have had their behavior fundamentally altered. And that is changing all the business models, all the marketing models, all the things that sit underneath it, as well as I hope being a benefit for a lot of people in terms of wellness, health. And, you know, a lot of this stuff is about accessibility, inclusion as well, because that adoption of people, as you put it, who previously wouldn't have used it, Mm. that is a good thing. There is always a but, which is like, it's not everybody. I think if you're a citizen of Estonia or somewhere like that, which is you know famously very, very advanced in terms of digital government, you're probably looking at this and thinking, well, this is ridiculous because I've been able to prove my identity, passport, tax status, goodness knows what, you know, online for a very long time. And um, you know, other governments around the world have done this to a greater or lesser extent. But I think the act of learning that I can prove I'm me and I have this characteristic to the door of a nightclub, you know, the flight attendant as I check in for my budget airline flight, you know, and all manner of other places that are going to be asking for this in the future makes me think, well, why then when I sign up for a service, would you like a copy of a utility bill to prove my address? Because I would like some kind of identity service, or at least I'd like my bank perhaps to act as a proxy to say, you know, I am who I claim to be. And I think people are going to very quickly become dissatisfied with proving one thing so comparatively efficiently as these vaccine certificates have been rolled out and struggling in other areas. And I know certainly, you know, from my work in UK government, oftentimes it's very hard to justify the huge expenditure to sort of modernise and transform things that have existed for years. Because, you know, the Revenue and Customer Service haven't updated many of the things to make it easy for you to see your, you know, your real-time tax status, the, you know, mm, the, the amount mm. you owe to the minute. It's not not there because they don't care. It's the vast cost of building it and you know, undoing the years of legacy that, that existed before it. But actually, what drives that change is 
demand from users, demand from citizens. And I think that this will reset people's benchmark for what they want. I also think it's going to light a fire under the digital identity question. And I think this is almost where we should wrap the episode because we can't get into this one. But it's going to light a fire under digital identity because for years, governments, businesses have dodged the issue of proof of identity. We've used lots of proxies for it. You know, you show a passport or you show a driving license or you show a combination of documents. And some countries have digital identity schemes and some have pass cards and and ID cards. But even those are difficult to administer and require lots of management and overhead. But even the ID card scheme in India, which has been rolled out, you know, early on to, you know, great fanfare, has been hacked, leaked data, has been issued incorrectly to people and shows that simply, you know, the mechanics of an identity process don't mean that you genuinely are proving people you know, are who they claim to be. But you know, the next challenge, I think, for the vaccine certificate will be, that's not your certificate. How do I know it's really yours? You know, fraud and challenges to the system. And so we move on to have a much more complicated conversation about identity. Yes. And I think that's where this goes. But it, yeah. it's interesting to see that perhaps we've accelerated towards that next inflection point where everything changes again in order to underpin the next set of services yes okay we'll wrap the episode there awesome we're out of time i'll be really interested to hear as ever from listeners who always know more than us if you have spotted any other things you think that covid has pushed forward innovations changes in behavior be interested to hear about them those are just the ones that we could think of very quickly but certainly they're the ones that feel most relevant to us and particularly that last one actually i'm about to go and get on my first flight at the end of the week in 18 months and i have the paper covid certificates i have the digital covid certificates i have everything a thousand ways and it'd be interesting to see which one of those is most successful for me yeah as we start to resume some very limited international travel let us know as ever thank you very much to everyone who supports us you can fund the production costs of the show 361podcast.com slash support Thanks to everyone who comments and sends us messages about the shows. You can find a comment underneath the episodes or you can contact us through the contact sheet on 361podcast.com or you can get in touch with us on Twitter. We are at 361podcast. We will be back in a fortnight with another episode. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye. Bye-bye. I don't have any jokes. I'm sorry. Confessed to my friend the other day that I said, I'm addicted to buying old Beatles records. And he said to me, sounds like you need help. I said, no, I got that one. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) acceptable. Okay. Elton John has bought his pet rabbit a treadmill. Mm -hmm. Oh, dear. It's a little fit bunny. Uh, Yeah, I don't really sing, but it's needed for this. So 10 years, three months. 10 years, three months. It's like a life sentence. I have been listening to the episodes where you do the jokes, and it just, I seem to be the boring person in the room. <laughs> so, 10 years, three months, and self awareness has arrived. <laughs> so, I'm trying to not bring it down too much by going, uh, next. Mm hmm. Move on. <laughs> it's not really the episodes with the jokes. I don't really see the distinction. <laughs> <laughs> I applied for a job in the salad packing factory. Oh, yes. Oh, that's great. Yeah, the hours are terrible, but the celery's great. <sighs> Tumbleweed. Maybe maybe um, don't give up the day job for that joke book opportunity. Yeah. Regretfully, I think that is it. I think that is, I'm afraid, all of the jokes. Okay. I don't have any new ones. So I'm just looking back at my list here. Yes, I have a list. So...
that's your lot. I definitely need to go back through and listen to all the episodes for Ben jokes and then put them in a book. And then that can be our next 361 merchandising. Yeah. Then burn that book. <laughs> 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 yes. Have you uh, cracked it, Ben, to your satisfaction? I think he has. Yeah, yeah. I've written some words. Okay. Should we do a trial run? Yep. Yep. Zero takes? Mm-hmm. Of course. Well, you know, try. Do my best. Season 20, isn't it? Or is it 15? Who can be sure? I tell you, that's Mark. Just, look, just say one, two, three, and he can cut the... Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe we can do like three with season 15 and one with season 20 and you can pick which one's right. Season 7, episode 20. Also, maybe Mark having a sense of humour failure at this point. Yeah. Sorry, Mark. I don't know about a sense of humour failure so much as he's sharpening his knife and heading to your house. Yeah. You're closer. You're closer. Oh. Oh. Uh, I'm not in, Mark. <laughs> Come on out. <laughs> Forever. Okay, ready? Yep. Hello and welcome to 361, a podcast about mobile tech and the world around it. My name's Ben Smith. This is Season 20, Episode 7, and this week we're discussing the way COVID has reshaped our digital lives and reflecting on whether they will be a lasting change. I like that one. Yeah. I'm going to do it. it will be a lasting change, I think. Okay. Yeah, you've got to read the text. Well, it said they. I prefer it. it it's, yeah, keep up the own. Yeah. <laughs> when I'm both the performer and editor, I get to... Yeah. <laughs> don't get any script assistance. If we had more Patreon supporters, I could get a script writer for this. <laughs> right then. Always a pleasure, gentlemen. Love you guys. Absolutely. Bye. Right, should we stop the recording? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Three. So fired. So predictable. <laughs> so fired. So fired. Ready? <laughs> Three, two, one, stop. <laughs>